My freshman year in Bible college, I had this class, Personal and Social Adjustment. It was a Christian counselor from a family ministry in the area, and he taught it. We talked about life cycles, depression, anxiety, dealing with grief, shared a lot about ourselves. It was honestly really refreshing for a ministry school to have something like this. You know, and we had group sessions, pass the basketball around kind of thing. One week we were talking about something like big life events or someone who shaped our lives, something like that. People were talking about losing grandparents. Some kids were kids of divorces, having crazy lives before becoming Christians. But there was one guy in my class. Mitchell Lewis. I am from Traverse City, Michigan. Mitch remembers meeting me at the recruitment table at something called Youth Convention, which is an Assemblies of God youth rally. Just think Comic-Con meets Christian Summer Camp. It's the best way I can describe it. Do you remember that? I think I remember the first time I met you was during the uh, the preliminary meetup. You were at a you were at one of the booths, right? Um, maybe I think so. I I think we were both freshmen at the same time. We were, but I'm uh, I think we actually met. For the anyway, first time in that class, we Mitch told a very different story than anyone else in the group. I didn't know at the time, but it was a story that he was still living, and actually, he is still living. It's the story of his theodicy. As much as I believed wholeheartedly in a God that was on people's side. And a God that loved people and wanted the best for people. Couldn't help but dissolve under the weight of, all right, my sister's dead. Why? Enter in theodicy, right? The rest of Mitchell's story and what a theodicy is anyway, coming up next on Meeting Real Life. going to have you on the edge of your seat. I'm really excited about it. But first, I'm going to do some housekeeping up front. A couple of things I need from you. Yes, you. Yes, I need it. Please, please take a second. Rate this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Podcasts, wherever this pod is casted. This helps us spread the word and get this podcast into the ears and into the brains of more people that are looking and searching for a more meaningful way to talk about uh, faith, life, and culture. So, real important, please take a second and do that. I really appreciate it. Next, we are on social media. Facebook.com slash Meeting Real Life is where you'll find the Facebook page. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at MRL Podcast. Then also, I'm really excited, now our website is live at uh, meetingreallife.com. So you can actually stream all of the episodes for Meeting Real Life right there on the website. And also, I'm going to be doing some blogging on there. So if you're looking for a little extra content, a little more discussion, check that out. It's going to be great. So, today's episode is The Odyssey. Okay, sorry, I had to. Chances are you probably have not heard of that phrase before. Let me define it for you. This is actually right out of uh, Webster's Dictionary. Theodicy is defined as a defense of God's goodness and omnipotence in view of the existence of evil. 
In other words, it's an explanation of why God allows pain and suffering in the world. Because we all ask that question at some point or other, right? Why does God allow pain and suffering? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why, God, why? Every Jesus follower kind of seems destined to walk through this experience at some point in their lives. It could be a heartbreak. It could be sickness, like a diagnosis from the doctor. It could be a death in your family, some sort of tragedy, or even just feeling the weight of suffering and and pain in the world. You know, that is that moment of theodicy. You know, and today we're going to use theodicy as kind of like a, a noun of, you know, this thing or this explanation or this diatribe, right? But also, it's it's a little bit of a verb. It's a little bit of an experience. It's this disillusion of, you know, I thought God was one way. I thought my faith was one way. I thought the world worked one way. But then all of a sudden, something happened. And it all fell apart. Really, that's the, the central idea of what this podcast is about, right? What happens when faith meets real life. But specifically, today, theodicy is about suffering and pain. And where God is in the middle of it all. That is the kind of moment that Mitch was in when we were talking in that class that one day. It's the same story that he sat down and told me. But for you to understand it all, you kind of have to go back to the beginning. Mitchell Lewis was born into what he calls a lax Catholic background. It's a pretty much mass every Sunday, get donuts after. At least until my parents separated at that point, I didn't have any spiritual formation, so to speak. It's kind of whatever I could coax out of casual conversation. Mitch had only one biological sister. Carly. How far are you guys apart in age? 17 months. So she was 17 months younger? 17 months younger, yeah. At one point, his dad began dating and moved in with a woman who had a dozen kids. Eight of them lived at home. So that whole situation, plus Mitch and Carly, made 12 people under one roof. So I kind of, I grew up raising, effectively raising my sister and also those other kids, considering I was in line to be the eldest, at least eldest in my mom's house. So I made sure to feed my, yeah, my sister fed every night and made sure to clean the house. I was the one oftentimes delegating chores and responsibilities. If dad or mom had to say anything about how dirty the house was, that was a big no-no. Right around the beginning of high school, give or take, Mitch got involved at an Assemblies of God church in town. It was a huge transformative experience for him. He came from this background of a lot of chaos and not a lot of discipline, not a lot of order, and then found this place of believing and belonging. I hit this critical mass in eighth grade where I realized um, that unless I disciplined myself, that there wouldn't be any discipline, there wouldn't be any help. And then this coincided my my decision to become a part of uh, an Assemblies of God Council and really doubling down on the faith faith there, uh, which was all about discipline and self-sacrifice and being open to the community. This church gave Mitch a real sense of belonging as he believed and gave him somewhat of a structure to kind of make sense of his life. Uh, It was a congregation that had a high value on discipline and sacrifice, and 
mixed with his kind of chaotic home life, gave him something to work for, to strive for. And so this became kind of a system of belief and framework as he navigated his kind of treacherous high school years. Health and balance seemed to be that thing that Mitch was chasing throughout all of this. And when he joined the youth group, he got really motivated to make big changes. There was a special education program at school that he actually took himself out of. And he started gardening at home because his family couldn't afford and wasn't able to buy healthy, nutritious food. Still, as much as youth group gave him some structure and some sense in life and a sense of believing, there were still lots of problems at home. And then leading up into high school, I became in many ways the, the, the patriarch of both sides of my family. My dad paid the bills for sure, but I, I was the one who, who managed all the crises in my home. When one of my mom's boyfriends was causing a hassle, I was the guy who talked him down. When my sister ended up at some party and needed to ride home, she was drunk. I hopped on my little moped at two in the morning and went to go pick her up. And my when my dad's meds stopped working because he was under too much stress, you know, I was the one who would call the family and calm him down and sedate him with food. So leading up to high school, I had assumed in many ways responsibility for taking care of my sister. Tell me about Carly. Carly was a very witty very intuitive and very spirited person. She was the quote-unquote life of the party, and she always was. She was also very kind, a very, very kind person. That being said, she she had a wide variety of friends, and she always had adventure after adventure lined up. She was also a very hard worker, and uh, it's also very goal-oriented. I still meet people now coming, you know, seven years, eight years later, who are like, I still remember your sister. I, I didn't know you were, her, you were her brother, and she always left an impression on me. There's a lot of, I don't want to say forgettable people, but there's a lot of people where I guess you don't, you don't necessarily leave that big of an imprint on a community. But it was that community, along with Mitch, that would be absolutely broken to pieces by the events that happened in the summer of 2011. How did you meet Jensen? So, latter end of uh, my junior and the early part of my senior year, I, uh, I met Jensen Swander. Through a few of my old skateboard buddies, kind of the the rough around the edges, but you know, sincere ragamuffins that I grew up with. You know, the free spirited, untethered, parentally uninvolved kids, right? A lot of single, a lot of single parents, those kind of people. Robert Jensen Schwander was the son of a Grand Traverse County Sheriff's deputy. Mitch would come to find out that his parents were together, but. It definitely was a rough home life. We we talked casually, we ate lunch together every once in a while, and he started sharing stories about me with about how how his dad got really physically violent with him. He would also oftentimes see his mom just get beaten up before his eyes, and how he couldn't stand to be there, and he couldn't protect his siblings anymore. 
from all this violence, and he needed to get out. Mitch felt a lot of sympathy for Jensen. He had it really rough at home, and to some extent, Mitch knew what that was like. And because Mitch is just a really compassionate, caring person, he wanted to see Jensen succeed. And so he proposed getting Jensen just through high school by letting him come live with his family. So I thought, I gotta get this kid at least through high school. It'll just be a couple more months. I'll pay my mom rent on his behalf. Not a lot, just for, enough for food and shelter. Right? And so I invited him to live in our spare basement room at our house in town. And that's exactly what happened. Jensen moved into the basement room at Mitch's mom's house. And for a while, everything went really smoothly. At that time, Carly was living with her dad. And so it was just Mitch, his mom, and Jensen. But then, Carly moved back in with her mom. And she began to get into arguments with Jensen. Bad ones. What kind of things did they talk about? They had, to, they had very different friends. So there was already kind of a turf war thing going on. They represented the different kinds of, I guess you could say, you know, malcontents in the area, very different philosophical views on how to get ahead. And they were both really struggling. Okay, so just to summarize, Carly, as wonderful and kind as she was, Mitch tells me, still had her issues and challenges in life as well. And he said at this time, she wasn't really taking responsibility for her actions. You know, she was just a teen struggling to figure her life out uh, in the midst of a really broken family. So that being said, she kind of got whatever she wanted or needed from her parents, whatever way she could. So if she needed money, she asked for money. If she asked for rides, she would get rides. You know, according to Mitch, her parents just kind of gave in to whatever she wanted or needed hand over foot. And this seemed to make Jensen really angry. You contrast this fend-for-yourself background that Mitch and Carly grew up in with the super strict, unhealthy, abusive environment that Jensen was in, and you get some butting heads. Jensen had this idea that, like, she, you know, she was disgracing her mother and her father and caught being a nuisance to her brother was trying so hard to take care of her and she was squandering all these resources they barely had. So she would, Jensen would yell on my mom's behalf oftentimes, like, how can you speak to your mom that way? You know, this, this went on for a couple months and we started realizing quite quick that, uh, I mean, the whole goal was for Jensen to get through high school, set that parameter up from the get-go. When his grades didn't pick up, we said, okay, uh, this housing thing isn't going to be working. The goal is for you to succeed. And so they parted ways with Jensen. Now, this wasn't like an overnight, throw your stuff on the lawn kind of thing. Jensen had a couch lined up to crash on, and they gave him food and clothes and even an old Xbox that Mitch had. So they sent him off as best that they could, but it was very clear that if he wasn't going to be successful in high school, then he wasn't just welcome to stay there indefinitely. What I didn't know then was that Jensen was still really angry 
blames my sister for the fact that he was kicked out of the house. On June 2nd of 2011, Carly was last seen around 5.30, leaving a friend's apartment near her job. This was two weeks before her 17th birthday. That day, Jensen texted Carly to meet up. This wasn't all that uncommon since they still hung around some of the same friends. They met up at Glen's Market and then somehow ended up at a vacant warehouse building where Jensen was squatting. Robert Jensen Schwander later confessed that this was the place where he murdered Carly Lewis. Well, it's always uh, uh, affects our community whenever uh, one of our uh, community members is killed, particularly by murder. Uh, we are a relatively safe community, and uh, uh, but we do typically have one or two. Uh, I briefly spoke with someone who was very familiar with this story. Prince Rivers County Prosecuting Attorney Bob Cooney. Prosecutor Cooney told me briefly just how graphic this was and how it just impacted the Traverse City community. Uh, this case was particularly uh, bad in that uh, Mr. Schwander had befriended the Lewis family and took advantage of that trust in uh, committing the act that he did. Uh, there are two possibilities as to how uh, Ms. Lewis uh, died. Either she was strangled for several minutes or she was uh, stabbed and uh, ended up uh, dying as Mr. Schwander watched and did nothing to help. And e either scenario is equally gruesome. And I think that's why uh, the judge departed the way he did, at least those are the reasons, some of the reasons stated. In addition to the fact that Mr. Schwander uh, helped to uh, look for the uh, body of, or, or look for Carly Lewis at a time when he knew that uh, she was deceased, and uh, also at one point had uh, unearthed the body and, and moved it to a different location. So. You know, those are all facts that made this particularly disturbing to our community. When Cooney talked about the body being moved, that was when Jensen moved the body from that warehouse where he murdered Carly to a sand pile behind one of the public buildings. That is where officials found Carly Lewis's body. When Carly first went missing, Mitch told me he didn't initially think anything of it. Sometimes she would go and party and she might disappear for one, two, maybe even three days. But four or five days later, his family and him grew very concerned, so they got the police involved. By the time they had actually found Carly's body, it had almost been a full two weeks since her disappearance. Mitch told me the story of how he found out. What was it? I think the 11th day of her disappearance. I was exhausted because I had been working uh, through a church internship at the time, also still working my part-time job and finishing up with exam stuff. I was ended up crashing at a buddy of mine's place. I hear the sounds of these car horns, which is 
minute-long nothing but car horns. And I walk outside, thinking, what the hell is going on? And I see my mom's boyfriend, big, buff, grizzled, mullet-wearing guy, tattooed head to toe, tears streaming down his face. It's like, they, they found her. already tired state, I was like, oh, where did they find her? You don't understand. They, they, they found her. So I get in the car and grab any of my stuff. I hopped in the car, drove home, see, and I saw all of my, all of my family, all of her friends standing in what I can only say is a haze. Who was trying to figure out and communicate details of the event in active time. There's police officers everywhere and pastors and church friends and family. There's about 60 people looking starstruck standing in our small lawn trying to figure out what the hell was going on. And our local sheriff walks up to me, hugs me, said, we've got terrible news. We found your sister. She was buried in a sand mound outside of the local library. She's dead. And I can only describe what what happened was an out-of-body experience because for like the next 45 minutes, it felt as if I was floating from conversation to conversation. And then at a certain point, I completely blacked out. And I woke up in front of, in front of a tree I used to go sit under to meditate and pray almost every morning. I looked down at my hands and I had punched this tree so much that I was dripping blood from my hands. And I was like, I have no idea what the hell is going on. <laughs> I don't know what's happening to me. But I can't help all these people who I love. And I don't know how to handle this. I remember bandaging up my hands and putting on this oversized hoodie and trying to go for a run because that's, that's how I de-stressed. That's how I got myself under control. <laughs> As I'm running, I see my best friend walking down the road. He hadn't been to the house yet, but I'm sure he got the news. And I said, Matthew, I don't know what's going on right now. He looks me in the eyes and says, I don't know what to tell you, buddy, but I just got the news that I'm going to be going to jail for two years. So in the space of an hour and a half, I lost my best friend, my sister, and I saw the, like, my complete inability to be emotionally available or supportive to my family. In the midst of all of this agony and chaos and pain, Mitch remembers a conversation that he had with Jensen just the other day. The day before we got the actual news that she was dead, I ended up 
finding Jensen. He was working at a, a furniture store in town that would pay him under the table so he could work full time. So I walked up to him and I said, looked him in the eyes and I said, I, if you have, if you know anything or anyone who might know something about where my sister is, please let us know. Shook my hand, looked me straight in the eyes, and he said, "If I know, if I find out anything about what happened, I will let you know right away. I love you, man." It was the first time I had fully ever came in contact with such such evil. Such that some person could had the capacity to be able to say something like that. It tore apart my sympathetic view. I would say my humanistic view on the propensity for human beings to prosper provided they had enough support. Because I was confronted with absolute, my first instance, absolute maliciousness. So these were the cataclysmic events that plunged Mitch into his theodicy. He had so many questions. I think any of us would have so many questions in that position. Why would God allow this? Where was God? Why did this happen? The answer to how Mitch responded to his theodicy, and what a theodicy is anyway, is coming up here in just a moment. Don't go away. The Bible has a lot of teaching and doctrine. Some of it is just easy to piece together that way, easy to build a worldview. Take the Ten Commandments, for example. Don't steal, don't kill, don't commit adultery. Simple, right? But at the same time, there's no cut and dry answer as to why God allows suffering in the world. It's just not there. Although Scripture declares the sovereignty and benevolence of God. In other words, God is all-powerful and God is all-loving. But the Bible does not give an explanation of what God allows and what God doesn't allow. Maybe the closest part of the Bible that hits on this sort of thing is the book of Job. So this is kind of like Bible meets This American Life? or uh... Yeah, I mean, it really kind of is. <laughs> and since we're kicking it back to Bible college days, I called up one of the people I know personally that knows Old Testament history and literature the best. Uh, my name is Casey Arnouts. I pastor at Grace Assembly of God in Fruitport, Michigan. I teach at North Point Bible College in Grand Rapids, uh, graduate of Central Bible College, attended Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois, and... Uh, 
I'm actually currently working on a master's through North Point. I asked Pastor Casey about the book of Job, a little bit of background on it, and how it unfolds. I'll let him take it from here. The book of Job is a picture of human suffering in the context of God, the universe, and everything. Its form is a play, and if you approach it as a play, it it makes the most sense. It's got an epilogue, it's got cycles of dialogue. I'm sorry, a prologue, cycles of dialogue, and an epilogue. And and it tells Job's story of suffering. I think this is really important to getting started with Job. So often we kind of read the Bible as this pie in the sky, God came down and handed this to us type thing. And although scripture is inspired, it's literature. And so think of Job as a play for a second. So the overture is playing, the lights bling, telling you that the show's about to get started. And in the epilogue to the book, um, God is holding heavenly court, and and this character, the Satan, the accuser, comes and... And so God says to Satan, hey, where you been? And Satan's like, oh, you know, just going through, roaming through here and there, just looking around. And God points out Job and says, there's nobody like him. He's righteous, unlike anyone else on the planet. And, and the Satan says, he loves you because you blessed him. Satan's like, well, of course he loves you and serves you. Look at all the stuff you gave him. If you took that all away, surely he would curse you to your face. And, and so God grants permission for, uh, for the Satan to, to eliminate Job's his wealth, his family's destroyed, ultimately his health is taken. Um, and, and in that two chap- the first two chapters, that epilogue, we get the cosmic perspective of what's happening, and, and we see Job's response. He continues to to trust God, even while he is racked by grief and pain. And so that scene ends with Job covering himself in sackcloth and ashes and saying, The Lord gives, the Lord takes away, may the name of the Lord be praised. And scene. And then starting in chapter 3, there are three friends who, who come to sit with him and comfort him. And, and that's when the conversation begins, trying to understand what has happened and, and why it's happened. This part comprises the majority of this play, and it can get kind of lengthy, just like Shakespeare, but we'll summarize. In the opening of the book, we know Job is innocent. God says so. Uh, Job protests his innocence. He doesn't understand the suffering, and his friends try to apply their theology to his situation. Um, they argue God is just, so if you're suffering, you must deserve it. And, and Job knows that not to be the case. And in, in pretty dense Hebrew poetry, um, for for quite a few chapters, they go in these cycles where a friend will speak and Job responds, another friend will speak, Job responds. And it's it's pretty emotional and gripping stuff. Finally, in uh, at the end of this cycle, Job makes his last defense of his innocence. He, he says, I wish God would show and and state his case, and in chapter 38, God does. So here's the climax of the play, the big moment. As a matter of fact, God kind of announces himself and says, come stand like a man and face me, and I will talk to you. It's this big moment, and God just launches right in. He shows up and, and starts asking Job, like, do you know where light comes from? Do you know where darkness goes? Were you there for the foundations of the earth? God, God basically lays out how broad the universe is and how complex it is 
and how complete his his governance of the universe is. Now, I'll admit this is kind of speculation, but I'd kind of like to think of it as God showing up and saying, do you know how an atom is made? Do you know what dark matter is? Have you ever seen inside of a black hole? In other words, you're barking up trees that are way too big for you, that you just can't possibly understand. And you need to realize that. And and at the end of it all, Job in chapter 40, 42 in the epilogue, Job says, God, I, I heard about you with my ears, but now I've seen you with my eyes. And and I repent. I'm sorry. I was speaking of things I didn't I didn't fully understand. And Job comes to this place of of humility and faith. Humility and faith. Not answers. So Job's story doesn't really give a definitive answer to why God allows suffering, does it? No. No, it doesn't. That's that's the one question Job has throughout and and God never does he never does answer it. But but that's part of the point of the book as well. It's the why question to suffering is a very natural one. But it it makes an assumption about our capacity to understand everything that's required to make sense of the answer. One thing that that I think sometimes um, devout Christians can struggle with is is Job's emotions are a roller coaster through the book. Um, he accuses God of orchestrating evil. He accuses God of injustice. He, you know, he claims God is blind to the suffering of of people in the world. He, but if you've ever experienced tragedy, I mean, emotions suddenly take over, and and we think and say and feel things that that horrify us in in a different moment or in a different light, and so. And so Job says true things. He acknowledges God's wisdom. He acknowledges God's power. He he attests to his own innocence, which God, in the first two chapters of the book, absolutely confirms. Job says right and true things, and and he believes he has an understanding of how the world works. I, I, for shorthand, I call it Christian karma. It's this idea that if if you do good things, God will bless you with good things. If you do evil, God will punish you with, with suffering. That's that's the theology that Job had, and that's the approach he he takes as as he's trying to to wrestle with his own circumstance and situation. And and it just doesn't fit. He he knows that he's innocent, not blameless, but innocent. And 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 he believes God to be just, but nothing in his experiences matching his own understanding of how the world works. And he's got the predictable emotional turmoil that comes as a result. I can so relate to this statement. And I think that that's where Mitch found himself. You know, we get caught up in this transactional model of Christianity, even though as evangelicals we believe that we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus. We still sneak ourselves into this idea of, you know, if I do good things and I follow the Bible, then only good things are going to happen to me. Only health and wealth and good things are going to come my way. However, if I do bad things and I rebel against God, then bad things are going to happen to me. Well, Scripture has a lot of wisdom and also lays out how to have a relationship with God and the things that God values and the things that God does not value and how to engage and serve God in that capacity. I don't think it boils down to that yin-yang, black or white dichotomy. I think 
I mean, I know bad things happen to good people. And good things happen to bad people, too. And here's where it gets really crazy. I think that if we try really hard to build some sort of hypothesis as to why God allows suffering or pain in the world, it almost puts this roadblock between us and understanding God. Because we're synthesizing and and drawing up on the whiteboard this formula for why this was allowed and this was not allowed and, and how it all fits together. It almost forms this wall of theology between us and the infinite, divine, benevolent, omnipotent God of the universe. That's actually kind of what happens to Job's three friends. At the end of this play of Job, God rebukes the three friends because their theology of God was off and they didn't really come close to the truth. And in the end, their concocted explanations of why God does what he does and doesn't do what he doesn't do fell short on them. They had a system that worked in in their own minds and, and in their own limited experiences that seemed to make sense of the world around them. But suddenly they're faced with Job's situation and and it doesn't fit the it doesn't fit the grid that they've created. That fact of Job's theodicy breaking the mold of his friends and how they understood God, that's what drew me really to connect Mitch's story with the play of Job. Let's get back to Mitch for a minute. So as much as I believed wholeheartedly in a God that was on people's side, and a God that loved people and wanted the best for people, a faith that made it really easy for me to be supportive of others and apply some kind of dignity and purpose and meaning into myself, couldn't help but dissolve under the weight of, well, all right, my sister's dead. Why? Enter in theodicy, right? Okay, I can deal with that, but now I'm sick. And I had faith. I prayed every single, you know, I prayed every single day. There was a point I fasted for almost three weeks because I was like, it isn't of God to be sick. And I'm very sick right now and distraught and at the end of my leash. So it must be a discipline problem on my end. After the events of his sister's murder, Jensen's trial, everything, most people in his family got back to the business of trying to be normal. But Mitch was not doing good at all. As my mental health got worse, as my physical health got worse, I got the formal diagnosis of post-traumatic stress, and I had three immune system collapses. I had mono that lasted four months and glandular fever that lasted nine. And I gained, gosh, I think in the first two years, I gained 80 pounds, and in a third, I gained another. So I gained 180 pounds in three years. I was falling apart at the seams, and it was my fault. I had lost all spiritual clout, any capacity to speak or be heard by my community because I must be morally failing somewhere. And I tried to figure it out as much as I could. I tried to reconcile the Odyssey. I read the book of Job 181 times. But I was struggling really hard with theodicy. Okay, 
So now that we have a lot of Mitch's story, and now that we have a summary of the book of Job, we can talk about theodicy, what that is. Theodicy is essentially the problem of suffering in the world. The philosophical argument kind of goes like this. There's these two categories with two options. Either God is all-powerful or not all-powerful. And God is either good or not good. So if God was good but not all-powerful, he would want to stop suffering but can't. If God is all-powerful but not good, he could stop suffering but he doesn't. If God was not good and not all-powerful, he can't and doesn't want to stop human suffering. But if God is all-good and all-powerful, then you've got this conundrum of theodicy. And this is what Mitch was struggling with. This is what he was wrestling with. And his faith and his framework was just not able to bear up under it. And really, in the end, it seemed like it kind of failed him. By every metric, not only by this point was I discredited from the church, I was um, health-wise enabled to serve. And as soon as I couldn't perform anymore, because I was a walking theodicy physically, as I became a symbol was a thing that would destroy their worldview. What did your pastor say to you? He stopped talking to me. Well, as soon as I dropped out of teaching children's ministry, largely because one morning I woke up and I had an anxiety attack and said to my, my youth, the, the children's pastor at the time of the church I was at, I said, I think I might have to report myself to Center One because I don't feel like I'm a human and I don't know what that means. Center One's the psychiatric emergency center at Lincoln Hospital where I live, just to clarify. While I'm sure that Mitch's pastor and the church that he was at meant well, they just couldn't seem to make sense of why he was going through what he was going through. Again, this feels a lot like Job's friends. They have this framework of of beliefs and ideas of the way God works, and when they see something that doesn't fit into that mold, they don't really have an explanation for it. So maybe it's just easier to not say anything at all. Mitch shared a lot with me about the things that he went through, how he was feeling, how bad it got. I mean, there was depression, there was confusion. At one point, he even was suicidal. And at his lowest point, he prayed this prayer. I said, God, if you are really, if you are really there, I know I'm degenerate. I know I must be a terrible person for me to be in this place. But if there's any shred of the compassionate being that I thought you were exists, come save me where I'm at. Because apparently I can't crawl to where you are at. Now that is an interesting prayer. It's not the kind you'd find in a Joel Osteen sermon or inside of an Our Daily Bread booklet. It was broken. It was raw. Maybe even theologically unorthodox. But I think sometimes that is a more helpful prayer. I think maybe Mitch had this broken religious framework of how God worked. This quid pro quo thing. Even he admitted that to me. But in his darkest moments, 
in the suffering of losing his sister, of being sick, of being depressed, even suicidal, he told me. That framework failed him. That religion failed him. Yet, in this prayer, he remembered a glimpse of light, a compassionate God, a shred of compassion that he remembered. And in a moment of throwing his religious framework in the garbage, he appealed and petitioned only to God himself. It's another parallel to Job. Mitch told me at first nothing happened in response to that prayer. But eventually he got a call from his Aunt Melanie. She invited him to come down to Missouri where she was and just stay for a while. She knew that Mitch was in a bad way and things were going really rough for him. And It seemed to be this like last rope that he had left. Like, okay... I will go, I'll go to see you in Missouri. There's one person left who's willing to reach out to me, and that was my Aunt Melanie. My aunt's priority for me was to help me extend in faith, believe that God was good. Because she knew that that belief was the crucial thing I needed to be able to move forward. Because I didn't have the grounding of faith in my life, I couldn't move forward. I needed God to help me. And she, her, her goal was to give me enough uh, anti-love and down-home cooking for me to hold out just a little bit longer till God came. Mitch's aunt gave him a book to read, The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom. It was a story of a woman whose family hid Jews during the Holocaust. Eventually, they were arrested and taken to concentration camps themselves. It was kind of like a manifesto for how to suffer well. It was kind of tough for Mitch to swallow and accept at that time, since he was praying for so long and so hard for just an ounce of that strength to come. But he kind of tucked it in his back pocket and thanked his aunt for all of the love and food and went home. And I created my first axiom, I guess, my first statement of belief. And it was this, that if there's any shred of goodness to God, he's anything like the Jesus I once loved. He would prefer me being an atheist over dead. And I dropped all of my standards for meaning, which had turned against me. I tried to figure out how do I live as an atheist, something foreign to me. And at that point, that's when meaning started coming back into my life. Bit by bit, and he's like, well, if I can't force myself to believe in God any longer, I'll I'll keep learning about faith because it's important to me and it was important to me. But I'll do it from from an atheistic perspective. I'll start trying to figure out these religious archetypes through you know, Freudian and Jungian psychology. And I became, you know, I started reading anthropology textbooks just for fun, uh, podcasting it up for days. I just absorbed everything I could. Because now, with a new frame of mind, I can, there is an endless amount of answers to an endless amount of problems, and any of them could be useful for me. And in the act of integrating all this new information, figuring out how to create systems of value to interpret it, um, I started coming back bit by bit to the faith that I had abandoned. A period of about three years. While Mitch's statement that God would prefer me an atheist over dead is not exactly an orthodox belief, 
I think in reality, it underscored his need to let go of the religious framework that was keeping him from God instead of leading him to God. Just like the friends in the book of Job, who had all of these ideas about why Job was going through his suffering and that it must be because of this or because of that, you know, God comes and rebukes those friends in the end. Mitch's story is also one that proves God is bigger than our questions and our searching. That he still pursues us, makes ways for us to find him. When do you think you realized that, although you had deconstructed your faith and walked away from it, that you had returned to a faith in, in God? It began for me with a, a theologian, two theologians specifically. Uh, one's a humble old Catholic friar named Richard Ward. And I had always had a brain that was very connective in nature, that I, I, I always thought elements were, uh, different elements in life were always connected. So Richard Rohr, with his, uh, a book called The Divine Dance, which reassesses Trinitarian theology, um, redefining God not so much as revealed in Trinitarian, Trinitarian theology as three disparate people trying to be one or but rather a mystery that espouses God as both in creation, above creation, and creation itself, or rather cementing God as reality itself. Started reconciling that with some uh, some Alan Watts I was came enamored with. He was an Episcopalian, I believe, Episcopalian minister who tried to reconcile Eastern thought with. Uh, Christian roots. Um, specifically, one quote that was very handy to me was that human beings divide in thought what is inseparable in nature. And so, through this really unorthodox road of practical atheism and then reading progressive theology, Mitch found himself returning to the faith that he once held and a genuine faith and expression in Jesus. I guess it came full circle to the belief I had before that relationality and connectivity is the bastion of meaning in life. And if I saw, started seeing God as that which we live and move and have our being, and in Him all things hold together, my first inklings of faith started again there. Do you think that God answered your prayer for that faith or for that to save you that you prayed so many years ago? I, it's weird because I say, I'll say no. But I say that that prayer is being act, that prayer is being answered in active time. That it's playing out in my life as it's going on. But God didn't, quote-unquote, save me. But I will say that in that humility of that falling apart, I found God in the seams, which gave me enough hope to save myself. Collaboratively, a joint process in the future but unfortunately, I feel like I've carried the heavy weight at this point. It doesn't sound super theologically uh, kosher. 
So if you're no longer an atheist, how would you classify your faith now? So belief-wise, I say I classify myself as a Christian pantheist who's working to be a Christian panentheist like Mama used to make. Have you talked to Jensen since he's been sentenced? I've not. Something I wanted to very readily be able to do. Part of it was because he closed lines of communication with us for a while. Uh, specifically after the first resentencing, I was in a place where I was too sick to be able to handle that. In the short term, I can't see reaching out right now, mainly just because how full my plate is. But if this does get to him somehow, I'm, I'm not mad at him. I'm not bitter. The reason I haven't contacted you is largely because I'm not healthy, as healthy as I would like to be right now. That might be so, that's something I do want to do in the future. There is so much more that Mitch told me that we just don't have time for today. First, he said that when he let go of his old religious framework and just opened himself up, he found all sorts of people who had very similar experiences, like he did. Experiencing tragedy and loss, theodicy, as it were, a lot of the people around him were experiencing the same things. A lot of them were feeling anxiety and depression. He says meeting people like that and finding a community was a huge source of healing for him. When I asked him about his future, he said he's really nervous, but more hopeful than he's been in a long time. He wants to pursue ministry still, or psychology of some kind, at a university in Traverse City. Right now he's just working, saving money, getting his health back. He told me forgiving Jensen was a longer process than he thought. He came to understand forgiveness, as he told me, the reconciliatory work of returning to shalom, or peace, according to the kingdom of God. It's about integrating suffering with his experience, as he told me. That suffering and forgiveness had to come together in some sort of way before he could really let go and move on. Today, Mitch is probably not in a place that's theologically kosher, as he put it, but I think he's still on a journey towards that, and he's in God's capable hands. Finally, Mitch said he wasn't sure God answered that prayer that he prayed a few years ago. But if I can be so bold, I think that God did. Maybe not in the way that Mitch expected at that time, or even wanted. He had to let go of an entire worldview and framework about God before he could embrace God himself. But he couldn't see that when he prayed that prayer. He told me, even at his aunt's house, he prayed for an ounce of that strength that Corey Ten Boom had, but it didn't come. It reminds me of a scene from that book his aunt gave him, The Hiding Place. At one point, Corey witnesses a neighbor child that had died and was terrified at the idea of losing her father. She panicked and asked her dad how she could possibly handle him dying and leaving her. This is what her father said. Well, when you and I go to Amsterdam, when do I give you your ticket? She says, well, just before we get on the train. Exactly, her dad said. And our wise father in heaven knows that we're going to need things too. Don't run out ahead of him, Corey. 
When the time comes that some of us will have to die, you will look into your heart and find the strength you need. Just in time. Meeting Real Life is produced by yours truly, Daniel Crawford. Theme music is by me. Special thanks to Free Music Archive for some more of our music today. Also, special thanks to Mitchell Lewis for sharing, Traverse City Prosecuting Attorney Bob Cooney, and Pastor Casey Arnouts of Grace Assembly of God in Fruitport, Michigan. You know, I think Pastor Casey had this podcast thing pretty much figured out. Is that anything like a... Uh... Does iTunes and stuff like that yeah, we're work? We're on iTunes okay. and also Google Play uh, and most places you can find podcasts. All right. Well, I have to. Don't I have to review things so that you get like? <laughs> that would be good. Greater yeah. traction, five stars, and good reviews. Yeah, good reviews, all of that stuff. Then also make sure you subscribe as well. Look at I've I've progressed technologically where I actually have the I know how to subscribe to things. <laughs> That's good. Doing pretty good for a cranky old white pastor. But I can, which is mostly gripe about things and complain about how they used to be better uh, with the exception of podcasts of course they're brilliant and awesome thanks for listening we'll see you next time <laughs>